0: One day I came across like this multi-unit. I couldn't really tell what it was because it's kind of unique. And uh, this guy was putting this for rent sign out in the yard, like right then. Anyway, so I started talking to him and I'm like, hey, uh, beautiful house. How's it, how's it going so far? That, like just kind of starting a conversation, right? And then I was like, well, would you be interested to sell the property? And he was like, I had never thought of that. And so in talking to him, uh, I was like, well, how did you acquire it? It turns out he had inherited the property. His mom owned it for years and years, and he owned it for quite some time. And he was kind of, you could just almost tell he was tired of managing it, right? Like he just had that look about him. So I said, okay, well. Um.
1: Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, we have Eric Nelson here. This is a dear friend, a Go Abundance member, GoPod. So, I get the amazing opportunity of spending an hour a week with this guy on a Zoom call, uh, as well as some of our other brothers in the pod. So Eric is a multifamily syndicator, a structural engineer, an amazing family man, uh, outdoor adventurer and all things, uh, just, just a great, great dude. So we are Eric, we're so honored to have you on today. And like always, we want to dive straight into it. So if you could tell us about your craziest real estate transaction experience or deal, we'd love to hear it.
0: Love it. Okay. Um, man, so you, it's funny. We talked yesterday or day before maybe, and you prepped me and we talked about this, like, uh, we talked about this, this deal that I found. that was like an off market deal. So that, that one's crazy just because of how it all played out. So if you're cool with that story, I'll just dive right into that one. Let's do it. Okay. Let's go. So this is early. This is early, in my real estate journey. My wife and I had, gosh, maybe two rentals, like single families and i I was like just learning the business like just learning how to like do the math really because honestly first like our first couple rentals i was just like oh like i'll buy a house because we have extra money and if i can if i can like cover the mortgage with the rent that's like the math i did um so then i was like tipped off to bigger pockets and you know other podcasts and stuff like that so i finally realized like okay so there's a math behind this business anyway so i my son was just born who's five now so yeah five years ago basically I would walk the neighborhoods with them like i'd push around on a stroller and every for rent sign i would see i would just call and be like hey i see your for rent um beautiful house even if it wasn't that was like the language i always used i was like i like the house it's you know it's awesome i'm not looking to rent but i'm looking to buy would you would you want to sell and like a lot of sales i mean it was mostly no's right like most people like no no thanks but uh, one day I came across like this multi-unit. I couldn't really tell what it was because it's kind of unique. And uh, this guy was putting this for rent sign out in the yard, like right then. And I was like, hey, how's it going?
1: It's you know, fresh. Like, yeah, I
0: love it. It was a classic. like, And it was so funny because the for rent sign was like faded. It was like he'd used the same sign, same <laughs> rent for years. 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, hitting, like Honestly, he was like hammering the ground. It was like this old... Like orange for rent sign, like so classic. Um, anyway, so I started talking to him like, "Hey, uh, beautiful house." Same story. I told everyone. I was like, "What are you renting it for? Um, you know, how's it how's it going so far?" That like just kind of starting the conversation, right? And then I was like, "Well, would you be interested to sell the property?" And he was like, "I had never thought of that." And so, in talking to him, uh, I was like, "Well, how did you acquire it?" It turns out he had inherited the property, and he he like his mom owned it for years and years and he owned it for quite some time. And he was kind of, you could just almost tell he was tired of managing it. Right. Like he just had that look about him. So I said, okay, well, um, you know, if, if you're interested, describe in style, that you... look
1: for us a little bit. He had yeah. that look about him. Like, well, let's did, say he, like, I,
0: I just, he was just like defeated, like slumped over, like, Oh, I got to find another tenant. And this guy's moving out like that kind of like moving slow, you know, like he was a, he, he was the type of person to do it all on his own, which there's absolutely some honor in that. So he had like paint on him, you know, like he'd obviously been fixing the place up, just looked defeated and super nice guy. I and mean, I still talked to him to this day, but anyway, um, he's like, yeah, I guess so. And I was like, all right, well think about it, you know, talk to your wife, think about what you guys might want for it. And I'll call you in a couple of days. So I gave him some time, called him back and he's like, yeah, I think we could. And he was like, but we would need, we would need a lot of money. I was like, okay, well, what is a lot of money? He's like, we need $1 million, which I think he thought that I would be like, oh my gosh, you're crazy. You know, but Matt, you know, I live in Durango, Colorado. So our market here is, yep. it kind of mirrors like a California-esque market, right? So it was six like units. San Francisco almost, yeah. Yeah, it was six units for a million bucks. And I was like, kind of knowing the rents, knowing where it was, I mean, perfect part of town. I was like, this is actually a pretty good deal, you know? So I, I was like, okay, how about this? Um, I think we could probably come to a deal at that number, but have you ever thought about owner financing? And and he was like, what's that? I was like, all right. So kind of walked him through the owner finance thing. Uh, I was like, here's what it looks like. Here's some benefits for you. You know, walked him a little bit and like the couple of key things I use are like tax benefits of owner finance, right? Like he didn't, if you're gonna sell it for a million bucks and your basis is, cause I'm sure he didn't do a step up when his mom passed, it's probably like a hundred grand, right? So he's gonna pay taxes on $900,000. <laughs> Or he could defer some of that. And anyway, you guys get the point. You know, you know the story. Um, and I also told him like, hey, man, worst case scenario, I default. You get your property back. Plus, chances are I've put some money into it. So he was like, yeah, let me let me think about that a little bit. And I was like, cool. Take a couple of days, I'll call you. So same story. Like, took, gave him a few days, called him back. He's so like, what do you think? He's like, yeah, we really like it. I was like, okay, here's the final kick. I don't have a large sum of money for a down payment, on a million dollar purchase. Um, could we do $30,000 down and a 40 year amortization? And I think it was four and a half percent. He was like, sure. Like didn't know that 3% down was like an unheard of number. Right. So we were like, we went to his lawyer's office. He's like, well, can I use my attorney to write this up? I was like, sure. I don't, I don't care who we use. Right. So we go to his attorney's office and his lawyer was like oddly mad at me. He was like, 3% man, like, do you know, you know what that is? And I had to kind of convince the lawyer too, because you know, the guy started to get a little uneasy. I was like, man, I live down the street from this. I, you know, I'm not gonna, I've never missed a payment in my life, but worst case scenario, right? Like he's going to get the property back. And so finally we kind of signed all the paperwork and sure enough, we bought this property. The other thing was that he had a down unit. So he had this unit, he would put all of his mom's belongings in. So he wasn't even renting it. So the very first thing we did when, when we bought it was get that unit up and running, got rents back up to market rate, and we were cash flowing pretty quickly. The cool story for him though was that our payment to him was right around the rent he was making before. And he had nothing, he didn't have to do anything, right? Like he just collects a check. So it was this super, super win-win situation. And then uh, to to take the story even further, hopefully I'm hopefully this isn't too long of a story, but uh I was I host a meetup in my town and a guy I know was like looking for a property and I was like well you know I hadn't really thought of selling it but I I would sell our sixplex um but let me call like let me call the the guy who I bought it from to make sure cuz I don't want to just like you know cut him out right so I called him and yeah. I was like hey here's an idea would you consider carrying that note on for the next purchaser and he's like sure so the guy who bought it for me still has that original owner finance deal in place. All he had to do was come up with the difference in cash between the purchase
1: and- And, and what, was, what was that difference, if you don't mind sharing?
0: Yeah, no, it's okay. It was 1.15. We sold it for. Um, it, was, it was just over a year. So my wife and I put-
1: so you made 150K money, in, yeah. a little in a under, year. Right?
0: Cause we had some cash in it, but let's just yeah. say yeah. all things said, 100 grand easily cleared in a year, basically based on like a relationship deal. Like me just talking to this guy, right? So that really springboarded my and my wife's kind of like real estate career for that matter. Because it was like the first time we had real cash in our pocket.
1: Okay. I have so many things I want to get into. Okay, so Tim, you. I'm giving you a warning that just hop in and take over when, <laughs> when you want to. Okay. So we literally just got done recording an episode with a guy who is a heavy salesperson coming in this industry. The, the feeling I get from you just as a human being off call and on this call, like you are just casual, nonchalant, but detail oriented, empathetic, completely, completely opposite would be a wrong term, but very on a different side of the spectrum as, as maybe how someone like myself would sell or this guy would sell like, or, Hey, you got the guy on the phone. You got to close the deal. You're like, take your time. So I want to dive into. That side of the sales process, that strength. But I also want to, and I'll let you pick what you do first. I also want to dive into. You basically were brand new. You bought a couple of houses that broke even, and now you're negotiating a million dollar sixplex with seller financing. All of these things. You're you're at the attorney's office, calming the attorney down. Like, what happened between oh, yeah. purchase one and two and that deal?
0: Yeah, awesome question. And first of all, yeah, I mean. I, I find more success in like that slow roll, especially with an older generation, right? Um, you know, there's definitely some, some sales techniques, obviously. Like you said, you got the guy on the phone, like he was willing to sell, like close it, right? I just got the impression from him that wouldn't work with him. Had I pushed, he would have just been like, nah, forget it, you know? Uh, but great questions. And I, I don't want to like under say what you're saying here because I lost some serious sleep. Like going, going for a purchase of a million bucks when our first ones were like three, like 307 was the first rental price we bought. 345 was the next one. And then the jump to a million was just insane. Right. So like when I first told Marie, my wife about it, I was like, am I crazy? Like, how could we possibly buy something for a million bucks? Like, that's insane. $970,000 in debt is what we're about to do. And I was like. I can't believe. Now, let me ask you a question.
1: Does. At that point, what was $970,000 in debt? How how was that as compared to your net worth? Was that equal to your net worth greater than your net worth? Oh no, my net worth at the time was like
0: 100 grand. Like it was 10 times it's like my 10 net worth Like
1: 10 times your net debt. worth in debt.
0: Yeah, because we had two rentals and our single family house at the time. So like I mean maybe a little bit more, but not much, right? Like so that's what that's what was so crazy about this deal. I had read a lot about i listened to a lot of podcasts at that point, read a lot about owner finance. I understood it. I'm kind of a math guy. So I understood the concept. But what I did was I called basically anyone I knew who was like a mentor or trustworthy. And I talked this this deal through with them. And they were like, numbers sound good, man. Like, yeah, that's a big number. But here's the other kicker too. And I I think this is really important to say. The property is worth more than a million dollars when I bought it. So there was kind of some built-in equity that was my perspective. I was like, "Yes, we're borrowing ninety-seven percent of the purchase price, but you know, loan to cost was probably significantly less. You know, it was, it was probably even when I sold it, I sold it at a deal to the guy because it was probably worth wh- more, like one point three, but just because it was off market, there was no commissions, and plus, like, the way the whole deal worked, you know. Plus, I didn't want to be greedy. I mean, making a hundred grand in a year is a pretty sweet deal. So, you know, to answer your question." I lost some sleep over it cause I was just so new. And so like, am I doing the right thing? And it wasn't without work, right? We put a ton of work into that property. I did a lot of the stuff myself, but it's just a cool story. And the thing I love to highlight is like, it was relationship based from the beginning to the end. It was like, even now that the guy still owns it. I still work like a block from that house. So all of those things were just basically like talking to people and being open to that cool relationship.
2: I
1: love this. I want to dive into the the gap, the knowledge gap that most would paralyze most people. I mean negotiating a seller finance deal. So you you talked about the the challenge of the size of the deal, which is its own paralyzing factor. But then there is the aspect of grappling with the creative nature of the conversation. And you're not just talking to the seller. Like you're sitting there with his attorney who's sharp <laughs> and been around the block. Walk us through like, what did you do to get educated on those topics and what, what puts your mind at ease to be able to be the same calm collected Eric Nelson in, in the face of an attorney and a seller?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, like that you and I, and and Tim, I'm sure are the same. We have this relationship, Matt. We love podcasts, right? We love everything about podcasting. And part of the reason I like it so much is because it helped me so much. Like bigger pockets basically was my... Moment, like Genesis moment of like, oh, like this, this is how you do it. So I just listened and listened and listened and listened. And then, you know, Brendan Turner's book's pretty good, right? Like, and the bigger pockets calculator even is pretty good. I mean, it gives you kind of a basic understanding of what was going on. So, you know, it took some time. Like, it took a couple, you know, sleepless nights of being like, did I miss a number? Uh, Does that actually work? You know, like, so it wasn't like I was calm and cool and collected all the time. But at, by the time I'd reached that attorney's office, I had talked to a handful of mentors, really understood the math, really knew what I was doing. And then I kind of done the other thing too, like, let's stress test this. What happens if we have two vacant for a couple of months, you know, like that kind of thing. Like what's a worst case scenario? Do we have enough cash to kind of float it for a little while? Let's say something bad happens, like, you know, roof blows off. Like, do we have enough capital reserves, like those handful of things that just, you know, give you a little bit more confidence in the deal. That was really what led me to be like, okay, we can do this. And also, you know, truthfully credit to Marie. She was like, do you believe in yourself? I was like, well, Ooh. yeah. I mean, that's really what I think what she said. It was like, do you believe in numbers? Yeah. Do you believe in yourself? I'm like, yeah, probably more so than most people, <laughs> you know, for what Yeah. I just like love the challenge as well. So, you know, I like credit Marie as well in a lot of
1: that. What a cool response from your wife. Like putting it in your hands in a way where she is supporting you and yet, like, allowing, like, dig deep. Like, basically, are you going to see this through? I guess is probably the underlying question that's being asked with that question. Um, oh, yeah. So you decide to not. sell the property. with that good? No, good. Uh, okay. So she, she you, you guys decide to sell the property. Like first of all, I would love to know the decision to sell. You've got this forty-year, super low interest note. You could ride this thing into infinity, but you sell it. Like, what was it a sell to just take the capital and be like, "Hey, we had a win," or and, and would you do that same thing again? Would you would you sell it if you can go back in time?
0: Yeah, I love that question. Um, so you know, you know my story, Matt. Like now, I do syndications, right? So around this time is when I had started stepping into multifamily, and you know, the pitch for a lot of like schemes or like strategies is like, Oh, you don't need money, like no money down, get rich quick. You know, that type of stuff. It turns out the best syndicators have cash available for lots of reasons, but earnest money gets pretty big number pretty fast on these multifamily properties. So the, the true reason to consider selling was to have some cash in our pocket. Like we could have used a HELOC. We could have used some other, maybe like borrowed some money. Like you can borrow to do those things. So I don't want to say it's not possible. It's definitely possible. But when you have a little bit of capital behind your business, it just makes it easier. And so we hadn't really thought necessarily of selling that property. I was, I was like contemplating the concept of it. Um, the other thing is it's an older property. It was built in 1899. Um, so there was some seriously deferred maintenance. And I told the seller that too, or the, the second buyer, of course. Like I was super honest with them. We walked through the whole property. I am an engineer by trade. So like none of that stuff necessarily scared me, but I saw like the dollar signs, like in the next five years, let's say there would have been a hundred grand probably worth in, in need. So it would have gone the other direction. Like it would have taken up quite a bit of our capital to make it that long-term play you're talking about. The debt alone was just one piece of the story, right? So the decision to sell was to move into a new business which is multifamily. I mean, it's all real estate, but it was kind of a new business. I mean, it really wasn't buying rentals around the block. It was now, okay, let's start into bigger markets syndication. What does that look like? The other thing is we like to invest alongside our investors. So to have that capital in place, but like, okay, we got this deal in Tulsa. A lot of investors ask like, are you invested as well? And if the answer is no, then like, well, I like to see a little skin in the game, you know? So for all those reasons, yeah, I would sell. Here's where Marie had an opposite effect on this because she's like, "I can't believe you're selling that. Thirty years from now, things be worth ten million bucks." <laughs> you
2: know, yeah. so she wasn't <laughs> right. as
0: supportive with the sale. But when I was like, "Hey, look, we need a little capital for this other thing," it was kind of a similar story. She's like, "Well, can you make more money in the other thing, or is it more passionate? Like, why are you doing that?" You know, that was kind of her next line of questioning. So when she saw like, "Okay, I have way more passion buying multifamily." Um, she was supportive of Ken. I mean, Marie's Marie's amazing, but generally speaking, she has my back. With the exception of selling,
2: <laughs> uh, this is absolutely tremendous, man. So I mean, it looks like the progression here is actually extremely rapid. You mentioned you had the two purchases that you had, and they were basically just covering the mortgage. Then you buy this one where you cash out, and then your immediate pivot was to do syndication. So. Like, how did that progression look? And like, why was that the direction you chose to take your business?
0: Awesome question, Tim. So if you guys don't mind, I'll go way back. Are you okay with me kind of starting way, way back? So in 2007-ish, uh, 2006, somewhere in there, um, I was in college with my brother and I was uh, in a summer internship and I was actually making decent money because I was working for an engineer. He was just out of a military deployment, so he had some cash. So in college, we were like, hey, instead of renting, let's just buy a house and rent to our friends. And so we actually like did a house hack before I even knew what that was, right? So that our first purchase was 2007. I like to tell the story. We had no business getting a loan. Like we're one of the reasons. I mean, I never defaulted. I never missed a payment, but like (laughs) two college kids, like what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? What could go wrong, right? right? Yeah. It was just like, It worked out like we, we rented to our friends, we fixed up the house, all the stuff, but like that was my first foray into, into real estate. And looking back now, I mean, I seriously had like 2000 bucks in my bank account and my brother had a little bit of cash, but not much. Like it was a a dangerous lender situation. I don't know what they were thinking. They said, okay, between my income, which again was not great, but some, and my brother's capital, they loaned us, they gave us a loan, this house anyway. So that was kind of the original look into real estate. I actually moved with Marie. We kind of moved around. We didn't own again until 2012 and then, uh, or 2013 or so right in there. And then I was just kind of clicking away at an engineering job, like standard story, right? Like building the 401k kind of honestly hating life. Like I didn't like that job. I didn't like watching how slow retirement came. So that was where my mind started going again. Like there's gotta be other avenues. And so it wasn't until 2014 that we bought our first rental. So it was a long gap between when I first bought and this. And then in 2015, we took a year off and traveled from here to the bottom of South America. That's a whole different story in itself. So we were like, when I got back uh, December, 2015, we were like broke. And I mean, broke like two rubbing two pennies together. Like out of money. We did it on purpose, right? To have this life. You were living
1: your best life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But we technically owned two properties. We were just broke, right? Like, so we had a little bit of net worth, but not much. So finally got a new, this is when I started my, my engineering company was right then. And it was funny to start a business with no money, but it it all kind of worked out. So I started making some income and then my mind started like swirling again, 2016. That's when right around then when I started kind of like buying single families again, which we bought our second single family. Then a triplex and then the sixplex it was actually that progression. But then around that time, let's say 2019, that's when I had a friend who was doing syndication and he like kind of introduced me to it. So I credit him for sure to even show me the idea. I had a limiting belief, honestly, of like partnering with people. I didn't want to partner with anybody because I was like, ah, I can do it. Like I can do the math. I can do the work. Like I trust myself. And that's a big push from him was like, dude, you'll go so much further, so much faster if you can partner with people. And so once my mind shifted in that way, I was kind of like, oh, well, why not syndication? You know, like I love the challenge. And so that was kind of the progression Tim was like, it was slower than it sounds, but fairly fast paced for like from 2016 from $0 to now six years later, like have a decent net worth, really love multifamily really, really engaged and love what I'm doing. I'm just blessed to have like walked the path that I did and, and had good friends and mentors.
1: Yeah. You know, cause we've had some long car rides together. Like, first of all, for those that don't know Eric, Eric is one cool dude. Um, I joined this group called go abundance, which Eric and I are both in. We have no clue of each other. We have a mutual, I have a friend in Durango where Eric lives. We find out we're going to be in this pod together. I'm like, Hey. Let's connect while we're in Durango. Turns out, he doesn't know me that well, but we're in a six-hour car ride together to Utah and then six hours back. So we got some some time in the car. We got to talk about personality, which is one of my favorite, like psychology, one of my favorite studies. So I, I've got a question for you. So I just can't help but observe that it seems like the engineer type can't help but get themselves into syndications and multifamily. Uh, we actually had one on earlier today. Do you believe that's true? And if so, like, can you can you say why the synd- Like, because you you were making 150k on this deal, that's a success, and you pull it out to go into a completely different direction. Like, what what is so appealing about the syndication multifamily space?
0: It's interesting. I actually like. I think there are several. Like, you'll you'll find engineers in the space as compared to other spaces in in real estate. But I also, I also think like the average engineer is a very nine to five, 401k type person, like work till you're 65 and then like that's, that's your kind of thing, right? So I think the engineers that kind of step away from that do find themselves in that multifamily. I think it's maybe because the underwriting is so specific. Like you'll find the engineers who like that's their thing, right? Like they're the underwriter kind of analyzer person or maybe like an integrator, like that type of thing. Um, but I think, I think that's probably why just because underwriting is so, so specific, but I also don't think engineers are as successful in the field as other people. Like I think sales people mm. tend to do better because the capital raising is a huge challenge. So if you, if you're an engineer, if you're in the space, typically you'll, you'll see them teaming up with someone very extroverted, very salesy, very like open to capital raising. And I think that's where teamwork could work really well. So I guess Incredible, the answer is yeah. it depends. I, I don't really have a good It answer. depends. Yeah.
1: Love it. Well, actually you, you provided some nice color on that for us. So, so I appreciate that. So diving into it a little bit, one of the things that I appreciate so much about you is your commitment to your family in the midst of business. And I mean, you could even see it going till you were broke so that you can enjoy traveling to South America and living that life with your family. Like as, is hard for a lot of entrepreneurs. A lot of entrepreneurs get so caught up in the in the numbers and the business. Can you walk through, like, give maybe some insights into, like, what is the value for an entrepreneur to maybe like not focus so much on the numbers and, and run a better balance in their life?
0: Yeah, so love it. Um, we we talked in the pre-show a little bit about this. We're in this GoPod that you just mentioned. So we meet on a weekly Zoom, and the guys in there are all kind of the same in what you just described like we're all kind of like family first it's interesting how much family stuff comes up like we're all driven we all want to make more money we all like kind of share our books like we share like what we're up to what our struggles all that stuff but even last week uh i was asking a question about like my five-year-old son and like how you know some advice from you guys so you know I think it's been really cool to have that group, but just generally speaking, yeah, I think you go back to like the why, right? Like whenever I talk to people about, about real estate in general, that's always the first question I ask. And if they have the time, I'll say, okay, do you have 10 minutes to kind of go through this weird exercise with me? And this is the exercise that it is, is like, I call it the infinite. Why? Be like, why do you want to be in multifamily? Be like, well, I like real estate. Cool. Why do you want to be in multifamily? Oh, well, I want to make more money great. Why do you want to make more money? Oh, so I can have, you know, more time freedom. Cool. Why do you want more time freedom? And it starts getting into that, like, oh, well, so I can spend more time with my family. Like it's, you kind of start like questioning a little bit, right? Like for me, I had to go through the exercise with myself almost like, why am I doing this? Right. I I'm an engineer. I make a fine living. I could just punch the clock, cruise home at five o'clock, hang with my kids, have very little stress. But I'm like, you know what? The end all is I don't want to do that forever, one. And two is I want to have more time freedom. So for me, I just kind of gave my answers. But then the time freedom, what am I going to do with it, right? I love spending time with my kids and my family, and I love travel. And so I really try and focus, like, even now, like, I have people who are like, oh, man, you must be so busy. I have some pretty hard and fast rules. Never work on the weekends unless it's like a webinar or some other reason to work in the evening. I rarely work in the evenings, just like try and hammer as much through the day as you can. Right. And it's funny, you can get a lot done in a day, but to answer your question, I just love spending time with my family and I really want to be there for them. And so all the work is really centered and focused on how much, how can I spend more time? How can I travel more with my kids? And we've been blessed to do that a lot. I mean, we take a lot of vacation. We travel a ton. I just love spending time with them.
2: What a tremendous answer. I really love the infinite why concept because, I mean, obviously they teach seven layers deep often, but, I mean, you said infinite, so it's like I feel like you're going much deeper than seven layers if there's an infinite amount of whys. And obviously that's how you could find your ultimate why, your purpose, your goal in life. Um, And this kind of brings me to what I'm super interested in because you mentioned you had a good engineering career. You're making good money. You had the 401k thing going. Like, what was the catalyst that caused the trip through South America that ultimately led to you starting your own engineering firm of some kind. I obviously don't know the full background there, but you started your own business in engineering and then you got into real estate. I would really love to know like, what was the catalyst? Like the aha moment where you're like, I don't wanna do this nine to five anymore. Cause as you mentioned, most engineers probably like that.
0: Yeah, I think, I think a lot of engineers love stability. I think um, love the like low risk, I guess. So one thing is I just naturally am a risk-tolerant person. So it's definitely not for everyone, right? But like, I also have this huge sense of adventure. So it wasn't like an aha moment per se. It was like an aha year of like, wow, I hate coming to this office every day. Specifically, the work was kind of like, eh, you know, like the the people were great. So I have nothing bad to say about my coworkers or even my boss for that matter. He was an awesome dude. Um, But you just, you're there, right? You're just sitting there all day, every day. There was even some days where there's not really much work to do, but you're like, can't really go home. (laughs) Like you just, you're kind of like stuck there. And so one was just this huge sense of adventure. And this was before kids, by the way. So like, you know, 2015 is when we took that trip, but one of it was like, was that reason was, was I was like, had heard a lot of advice of if you're going to have kids, which we knew we wanted to spend some time, very specific time with your wife and it'll be it'll be kind of that building that base, that like foundation for you to be parents. And so that was like kind of the catalyst, so to speak. Marie is she loves travel, she loves more like I'll say pool time, you know, style travel. And so when I first pitched this idea to her, I was like, let's drive from here to South America. She's like, Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and, but then I but then I started showing her blogs. I started showing her like hey, check out this blog or like check out this book. There's even a book out there like I bought for her of this guy and his wife who traveled the world in a Volkswagen van. And uh she was like, oh, like kind of started realizing like, oh, th- we actually could do this. And it's hilarious. Our our vehicle of choice was a 1982 Toyota pickup with like a little camper thing on the back. It's called a Chinook if you look it up. It's like So we spent 2,200 bucks on it. I spent about four months and maybe three or $4,000 fixing it up and kind of altering it and making it ours. But we drove in a two wheel drive four banger, like super slow vehicle the whole way, 28,000 miles. And it was basically like to, to have this adventure prior to kids and just to do something different. And then you know, the catalyst to start my own business actually happened on the trip. So we, I'll never forget it. I, I can still picture the place. We're in Guatemala, which is kind of early in the trip, actually. A friend of mine called and he said, Hey, can you do a septic design for me? I was like, Oh, man, I'm not really working. Um, but I, but I can, like, I, I can do that for you, sure. So I was like, Oh, man. I was like, Marie, let's, let's start a quick LLC and open a bank account. And I remember having a hard time opening a bank account from overseas. But anyway, so I just had this like, Oh yeah, I'll make a couple bucks on the road. And as we drove, like more and more people started calling and they're like, hey, can you like Matt, for example, he has like this really cool thing in his backyard. I helped him draw it, like stuff like that would come up. We're like, hey, I know you can do this. Can you like draw this for me? So I kind of oddly started this business on accident. And then on the way back, I called my old boss and I was like, hey, do you have a spot for me? Because the plan was always return back to work. He's like, ah, we're kind of slow. You know, maybe in the spring. And as i mentioned i was broke so i was like i don't have time to wait so i just started um calling people calling contractors telling people hey i'm i'm doing stuff and it just kind of took off um timing was right There's some luck involved no doubt but that was how it all happened for me
1: did an epic job so for anybody that's had a chance to go to our house we hang out often under the thing you designed for us in the outdoor kitchen so we wildly appreciate- it hasn't fallen down yet so
2: that's good. Um, as far so, as we yeah, could tell, it's, it's.
1: Yeah. well, I remember going back and forth because the amount, the depth of footers that you wanted. And I'm like, why do we have to go this deep, Eric? And you're like, if there's a 200 mile per hour wind, it'll pick the thing up. And I'm like, okay, all right. This thing is definitely safe. Um, I want to, I want to go through this exercise, this infinite y exercise with you, because one of the things that I know in going through it and then just watching other people go through it, want to get your take on it is like you sometimes uncover some fraud that's going on in your own mind, right? Like you tell yourself, I do this for the family, but then when it really gets down to it, is it really about that? Like, what have you discovered in your own life and the lives of others? Like, have have you noticed that? Like, they're like, Hey, I do this for my family. And then you get down to it and they're like, this isn't leading you to spend time with your family at all. Like hundred percent kind of walk us through that. No, I've
0: discovered that in myself too. So I love this question. Like it is kind of surface level because we're on a podcast. I'm not going super deep, but like what I have discovered is I am motivated by progress. I'm motivated, like Matt and I, again, talked about personality. Like there's something in me that like loves making things slightly better, making things run smoother maybe, or like what's the next idea? And so, you know, yes, I want to spend like financial freedom is one thing, but then you start getting into what drives you, you know? And for me, it's like, progress. So that's really why, like, I love multifamily so much because we're like implementing new systems. I also love it because we're like creating a better place for people to live. Um, and so there's a lot of wins behind it, but it's also progress. It's like, we're making every, every place better. And that's super exciting for me. And then, you know, working with our project manager, like, Hey, have you ever thought about like this? We have like this KPI tracker that when we show every pro- property manager to like roll their eyes. Right. But once they start using it, it's like incredible. And I didn't, I didn't come up with that KPI tracker. I just like it. And we happen to use it, but that's a good example. It'd be like, I realized a lot of what motivates me is progress. I'm not necessarily motivated by sitting on the beach with my kids, even though I really love that, that wouldn't drive me for a very long period of time. You know, like I'd get pretty tired of it. So in this infinite why, yeah, you're so right. You're usually going to drill into something more than you thought you know, and if you're really honest about it, you know, Matt, I, I, I think you're kind of the same way. Like, I love your drive, your passion, you like, you get so excited to like, see the progress, see the movement, like all that stuff. And Tim, I don't know you as well, but I imagine you're the same. Like you seem like a very driven dude. So that's really where you kind of dig in. And I love the question, Matt, like it'll, it'll uncover some things you, you probably didn't even know about yourself.
1: Yeah. Well, and it it forces, I think, to be honest, like I have some people that are close to me that have told themselves, other people their whole life, I'm doing this for my family. They've amassed massive wealth. They're on the other side. And it seems to be less clear if that's actually why they built this thing, right? Like this stuff isn't going to the causes that I think they said it would. And so I love that infinite why process because it forces yourself to be honest and like put stakes in the ground. Like, is this truly why I'm doing it? If it's not, well then at least just be honest with yourself as to why you're really doing this. And if you don't like the answer, then maybe you should change it. Cause maybe you're becoming a person that you don't want to become. Um, yeah. So love this. So let's dive a little bit deeper. So we're in the story, you're starting to syndicate and this is starting to grow some legs Talk to us a little bit about where, where do you see this heading in the next 12 to 18 months? And then maybe give us a little glimpse of like the, the distant future.
0: Yeah, I love it. So this is a very interesting time for me because I'm gonna start scaling an educational platform. So like I have now realized I also get joy in teaching, like in, in not necessarily teaching, it's a, kind of a wrong way to say it, but like seeing other people see the things I did. So like one would be just, I, I've touched on it, be like working with teams. I think I run into this quite a bit. Like you talk to real estate investors and if they have a couple single families, for some reason, people are, I don't wanna say against, but like scared of partnerships maybe, or like don't necessarily feel like they would trust other people. Like I hear like the, oh, well, I'm a control person or I'm a control freak or like whatever. Like that type of thing. I love encouraging people. You know what? You can still have a lot of control and have a really good partner. And and they might have a balance that you'd never thought of, like that type of stuff. So from here, moving forward, I'll do more coaching. I'll do more like education, building kind of like a platform on that as well as continue to do multifamily Um, for the future. I think what I would love to do is like have a steady pace. So this last year we're going to close our sixth syndication in just under a year, and that was a pretty fast pace, but now that we have the systems, that's a pretty good pace. So I would say if we can close four to six for the next four to five years, That's a, that's a pace we can keep up with. We're not like killing ourselves. We're also like, you know, doing a good service for our investors. Cause if you have so many all the time, it's just, you know, it's going to get a little crazy. So that's where I see this going. And it's funny things will start turning over, right? Like four to five years from now, or even soon we'll start selling. So it becomes this kind of semi turnover. So with the educational platform and with real estate, that's where I'm going to go for the next, say three to four years. The horizon after that, it gets pretty blurry, which I don't mind. Like I kind of like not having like a long, long-term plan, right? So that's what I'm up to right now. Ten years from now, who knows? I might be in, in a car in South America. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Maybe. It would be a great time to redo the trip possibly with your kids this time. I mean, that sounds like it'd be yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I'm super curious your answer to this question because you have the infinite whys. It's like if you had a billion dollars in the bank and 100 lifetimes of consistent cash flow coming in, What would you be doing with your time?
0: Okay, I love this question. And this is really, also really interesting too, because maybe you guys know or don't, I think a a week or two ago, there was a billion dollar jackpot on the uh, lottery, right? (laughs) Well, it was two, but I'm talking about after tax. Like you would literally, from that winnings, you'd basically be a billionaire, which is uh, like I started wrapping my mind around it because I got these tickets and I'm like, what if I actually won? Like, what would you do with a billion dollars? So it's, it is interesting timing. So I'll say there's two answers. One, if it was like $2 million, a $3 million lottery jackpot, totally different answer. I would just buy multifamily and continue what I'm doing a billion dollars. What I would probably do is, uh, getting very specific with my close friends and colleagues around buying homes in specific locations where I can spend more time with those people, if that makes sense. So like, I'd have a house in California. I have a lot of friends out there, family out there. Come see Matt. Uh, I'd have a house in the mountains. Marina and I love to ski. Uh, Have a house in Phoenix. We love Phoenix. And then I'd have a really nice jet and I'd fly around. And then I'd like purposefully ask friends to join me on those adventures or or my family. Right. So that's what I think I would do. (laughs) Just hang out with people. My favorite thing on the planet is to spend time with people. Like me and Matt would stay up to like, and Tim, you were there. We stay up to like three in the morning for some reason and just talk at this abundance event. So that's like my favorite activity. So it's a weird answer to the question, but what I would do is hang out with people. I'd be a billionaire that just hung out in different locations that are cool.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, how could, what better life is there, right? If you're just hanging out with your friends, you own properties in all these locations, so you can rent them out when you're not there. I mean, sounds like a wonderful life. Um, No doubt.
1: well, this this is not to underscore, and Eric, I'd like you to touch on this because we want to share with the world the things that we're passionate about too. You you give a ton charitably, um, not just money, like you give your time. So can you give a little color on what, what sort of charitable endeavors do you love and some of those missions that you have?
0: Yeah, so I was actually, it's unfortunate I didn't touch on that. I'm glad you brought it up, Matt, because a huge passion of mine is so I, I was a missionary for a couple of years. When Marie and I were first dating, actually, she's a saint for sticking around with me because I actually was in like the Philippines and China and Switzerland and India and just doing mission work for this period of time when we were first dating. And um, we stayed together throughout all of that. But basically it put in this, like instilled a huge heart for, I use my words carefully because not all missions are probably Uh, As good as they think, but I still have a huge heart for missions because even if like, even if the missionaries are getting a huge benefit rather than the people they're trying to serve, I still think that there's a huge win on both sides. So I have a huge, huge heart for missions. So we do give a significant portion of our income to missionaries that we know and things that we believe in. We gave uh, a lot to a church and I'm not trying to brag, right? Like I'm just telling you that my, our passion is behind that. So this couple started a new church in Mexico, for example, and I traveled there and saw what they were doing. And I just fell in love with everything they were doing. And it happened to be that a friend had lived there for years. So I kind of knew the space. And so I, you know, we like to give a lot of money there too. And so the truth is, you know, if I was this billionaire talking about hanging out, we'd probably spend a lot of time in, in mission work as well, and probably quite a bit of that money in, in things that we believe in. It doesn't necessarily even have to be like backed by faith or religion. There's plenty of really cool things out there. For example, like I get a lot of my time for the Boys and Girls Club here in town. I just love kids, right? Like they do a really good job of after school care. So that type of thing would would take a lot of my time as well as it, as it already does. You know. So to answer your question, Matt, like those are my things that I really love. Like really good care for kids and really well thought out mission work. Just huge passions.
2: That is absolutely tremendous stuff. I mean, I'm super curious about the missions now. Like, was there any skills that you were able to develop there mm-hmm. while you were acting as a missionary that you've transferred into other areas of your life?
0: Yeah, such a good question. You know, I don't think I've ever thought about that. But yeah, I think one is like probably risk tolerance. So I led a team of eight Americ well, eight people from all over the world, actually, now that I say it to China to, to do some missions. And it was like, at the time a little bit, not dangerous really, but you weren't allowed to be like a missionary. Like you weren't allowed to talk about it. So we had to be a little bit careful about what we're saying, what we're doing. And the trip was fairly unknown. We basically bought tickets and we're like, we have one connection there and we'll figure it out from there. And so that type of thing is a skill of like being okay with some risk probably. Also just like being uncomfortable Like we didn't have a lot of money, right? So you just live in these places like locals and that's part of why I liked it, but just not necessarily being totally in your comfort zone all the time. Um, and then I wasn't really like, I never really had like a evangelist kind of like tell people about my faith. I've always taken the approach of like, here's what I believe. And if, if that works for you, or if that, if that resonates with you, it's not really my job to like put that on your heart, right? I can just tell you what I feel. So that was kind of my approach. So in a weird way, maybe that's like some sales skills, I guess, which would be a really long reach, but you get my point. Uh, Just being okay with talking to people I don't know, you know, walking up to people, or, or maybe like say, hey, look, it looks like you need a hand building this house. Like, can we spend a week helping you? And there's no return needed, right? Like that type of thing so i i'd never thought about that tim that's such a good question i'm sure i gained some skills other than just being like super out of my comfort zone that alone is is a great skill. i'll say
2: that the out of the comfort zone skill well, is i like mean not to mention itself. like yeah i'd say that's worth it a hundred percent oh yeah
1: yeah like to to think that you gained risk tolerance is incredible like i mean i don't know if that's connected at all to the risk tolerance you mentioned in regards to going into syndications but like you look at the engineer's mind, you look at the analytics, the skills, the capabilities, like they have all the tool sets to be phenomenal because of their analytics. And yet they don't go into that field because of the desire for security. Would you say, when you say risk tolerance that the the risk tolerance you developed on that, on the mission field would be the same thing you're drawing upon in investing? Yeah,
0: probably. And the other thing like the other thing coming sort of full circle back to like what Marina and I did well on that trip to come back flat broke was we kind of have this like running joke with each other of like if we lose it all it doesn't matter. Like it's kind of this joke but that's actually how we feel. Like we could live on a in the middle of Mexico because we both love Mexico just in general with very little money and be probably quite happy. So we kind of have this like running like thing like it doesn't really matter if you lose it at all. I mean, at this point, I sincerely hope I don't because it's not just my money. Like I'm, I have investor money, but right. Like let's say I make my investors whole and we lose <laughs> right. everything. Let's just like, claim that for your be, investors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Sorry about your money. Let's just say I kept all of them whole and we lost everything. We have this kind of like attitude of, we've lived with nothing before. We lived in a car for a year and that was one of our best years of our life. That kind of risk tolerance probably did come from some mission work. Because we were broke. I mean, that's that was like standard very young missionaries. Like we were asking people for money to go on these trips. That was the original like capital raising, right? It was like asking churches, asking people I knew to help find these trips. So yeah, there's probably quite a few uh skills gained. I never thought about that.
1: Well this is really interesting because here's the thoughts that are firing in my mind and you're kind of saying it either directly or indirectly which is part of the risk tolerance that you built in these other countries was the recognition of the fact that even if I am at zero monetarily, I could still be incredibly happy. I mean, this is one of the reasons I went on mission trips as a kid, why I'm happy to send my kids on them is you want them to get a sense of like, what's out there in the world, the, the different levels. And the fact that most of the most impoverished countries in the world have the happiest kids. I mean, until they're impoverished so much that they don't even have food at all or, or very, that's, that's a little bit different, but the second their base level needs are met, those kids are like the happiest kids. And like an exercise that I do a lot mentally is like just being sitting in comfort, knowing that like, Hey, if we lose it all crazy lawsuit happens, like life's going to be okay. Life's going to be good. And like that exercise probably gets a lot easier when you are missions focused, because you could truly see that your, your life happiness is not connected to your To your monetary circumstances so do you would you connect those two things too saying like hey because i could be happy when i'm broke therefore it's not a bad thing to be broke necessarily don't strive for it but it's not a bad thing so therefore why not take all the risk in the world
0: yeah and i think everyone again has a different tolerance for that right like some people are incredibly uncomfortable with that thought of being broke so i don't want to like place this label on everyone but but my wife and i we're not and i totally agree with you like A good example would be like, I remember being in the Philippines and I was hanging out with these guys. Like they became friends of mine and they, they all, they were all taxi drivers, like little tuk-tuks, like little three-wheeled like things. And I would sit, I would go hang out with like, go hang out with them. And most of the time they weren't working. Most of the time they were just like hanging out with each other. And I was always, and I asked this guy one time, like, dude, you, you know, like you could make more money. If you worked more hours, like I wasn't trying to be mean, but I was just kind of like, what's the, what's the thinking here. Right. Cause my mind is like, you could totally make more money. And he was like, yeah, but then I wouldn't get to hang out with my friends. And like, he's like, they're so happy. Like I don't need any money. Like I live here with my family. I own this house outright. Like I inherited it from my parents. The money I have is just for food on the table. And I make plenty of it by working one or two hours a day. And I be of these guys so much that they asked me to be on their basketball team. Like I played in like this interleague Philippines league with, with these oh, guys. Oh, dude, you
1: were probably like twice as tall, right? Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I was trying not to like yeah. dominate too much. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but it was super fun. And actually, to be fair, they were really good. Like it was a good league. But anyway, like just getting to know them, their mind was way more around happiness, time spent with friends than it was, you know, money. And that's the culture. You know, and so to your point, like, you know, they, they made very little, but they didn't want to either. Like it was kind of this completely different culture, different mindset. And I think, you know, again, it's not for everybody, but if you have the mentality that you're okay with very little, it can be a powerful tool because again, you can start taking risks that like, maybe you wouldn't have taken before.
2: Absolutely.
1: I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah eric nelson thank you so much for giving us your time sharing your your stories the the challenges the deals that you put together it's been an absolute pleasure for those of you listening please take action on something that you pick up today maybe it's the mindset maybe go on the mission field or do something that allows you to recenter your mind or maybe focus more on your family. Like, I mean, Eric gave a great example of just not working on nights and weekends and and making sure your business grows under that context instead of just giving it all away and not having enough time with your time family. So take some action, write something down, share it with someone you know that can hold you accountable. Take action with the next seven days because freedom is acquired one action at a time and is not as far away as you think. So thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you guys on the next episode.